In almost everything in life, there are do's and don'ts calling for obedience. Uh, there was a missionary with Wycliffe. Her name was Arletta Loving, and she was washing her breakfast dishes one morning, and she saw Jimmy, the five-year-old neighbor, who heading to the back porch. And he would often come over, and this wasn't unusual, but she had just finished painting uh, the, uh, the porch rails, the handrails on the porch. So she says, come to the front door, Jimmy. There's wet paint on the porch rails. And Jimmy says, I'll be careful. And he keeps going to the back. And she says, no, Jimmy, don't come up the steps. And he says, I'll be careful. And finally, she shouted, Jimmy, stop. I don't want carefulness. I want obedience. And Jimmy said, all right, loving. He called her. He was the only person in her life that called her by her last name. All right, loving. I'll go around to the front door. And she remembered, in that moment, she remembered Samuel's words to King Saul. To obey is better than sacrifice. And she thought to herself, how often am I like Saul or like Jimmy, saying to God, hey, I'm going to go my own way, but I'll be careful. I'll be careful, Lord, as I go with my own plans. God wants our obedience. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 show us what love does and doesn't do. And they're based on the imperative commands of God. There are six imperative commands in these two brief verses we're looking at today. I love 1 Thessalonians. We've been going through it verse by verse. We've gone through every verse so far. And it is encouraging. And it is also challenging. It models a desperately needed supernatural love whereby the sovereign initiating love of God inspires our sincere and sacrificial love for each other in the body of Christ. If you had to boil down you know, the whole message of 1 Thessalonians so far, I would put it something like this. God chose believers. We are his beloved children. And as we turn to him from idols to serve him, love him, worship him, the living God, and the word of God is at work in our hearts, in our lives, as we welcome it into our lives, as we put out the welcome mat and open the front door and say, come on in, word, uh, my conscience is bound to you, as the Spirit uses the word in our lives, our love for one another and for all people overflows the banks to bless people. And we choose the startling beauty that defeats disunity. And we become more beloved to one another in the body of Christ. In chapters 4 and 5, Paul was encouraging them, he charges them really to, to love with an urgency in light of Christ's imminent return. And the last week we saw in verses 12 and 13 in, in this chapter 5 how pastors and elders are to lead well and to serve, and, and how the people are to treat their leaders, how good leaders labor and oversee and admonish. And I know you know this, but your leaders at Grace Orange love and esteem their leaders. They know their leaders. They follow them. They imitate them. 
But then we also saw that everyone has to be at peace with each other. Be at peace with everyone. I mentioned that there were, there's 3 billion plus people on earth right now that need the gospel. And they need to see it lived out and they, they need to hear the gospel spoken. And so why don't we just start in our little neck of the woods doing exactly what Jesus says will identify us as his followers. Now what we're doing here is really what Paul's doing is, is just continuing on his flow of thought. He's continuing on his flow of thought. And he says this, not only are we responsible to love our leaders, we must love everyone in the church. We must love one another. And, and it's, it's, it goes along, Jesus said it so many times. And he said it this way in John 15, 17. He said, these things I command you so that you will love one another. Show the love. It's agape love. It's, it's God's love. And that love, that kind of love, that agape love, reflects a personal choice to love. It's not simply good feelings or pleasant emotions towards people, but it's a willing, self-giving, sacrificial service of love. And love obeys God. The point of these verses today is love obeys God. Here are six imperatives for us to obey if we would do what God says. That we would, the the message is obey these six imperatives. Love obeys God. These two verses, six imperative commands we must obey. And by the way, there are things often ignored. Often people will say, well, someone else will get to that. Someone else will care about that. I don't need to worry about that. Someone else will care about that. But what we're being told is, here is how you help each other be healthy in the body of Christ. Here is how you love your local church. Here's what we see. This is a a very simple outline of this passage. First, what love must do. What love must do, verse 14. And then, secondly, what love must never do. And then third, One umbrella exhortation that love must always obey. What love must do, what love must never do, and then one umbrella exhortation love must always obey. We'll start with what love must do. And in verse 14, there are four imperatives, four sub-points that everyone must obey. And it goes right along with four descriptions of people in a moment of time. Sometimes we have this tendency to say, well, this person is always this way. This is what they always do. What this is about is someone who's in a moment in time, maybe it's a season, maybe it's just a moment where they're they're described in this way, here's how you help them. Here's the imperative on how you help them. Verse 14 begins, we urge you, very strong word, parakaleo, It's, it's the idea of coming alongside to help. We urge you, we exhort you, brothers and sisters, and and this is what it's pointing out. There is responsibility on the entire congregation. You can't come to me after the service and say, hey, I have an exemption, or I'm, I'm requesting an exemption. We're all on the hook for this one. We all are, are responsible to do what these verses say, and you sum it up with love one another. But do the positive commands, and then do not do the prohibited things. The first imperative is admonish. Admonish the idols. It's an imperative. Admonish the idol. 
admonish, and it's the Greek word nutheteo, and the reason I bring it up is because we're committed to biblical counseling here, and that's where we get the idea of biblical counseling. It's warning, it's instructing, it's giving counsel with the word. It's admonishing, and the ESV puts it, the idle. The New American Standard says the unruly. That's really a better translation of that, but what you'll notice is that unruliness in your heart and your life leads to idleness. So they connect. It's the idea, the idle or the unruly is, is you're undisciplined. You're disorderly. Literally, you're out of order. You're out of place. It's a military term. It means disarray in the ranks. It's, there's a deserter that neglects their duty. Someone has swerved out of rank. And those out of line must be warned, according to God. Now, let's turn over to 2 Thessalonians. I've told you this before, but as soon as we finish 1 Thessalonians, we'll go straight into 2 Thessalonians, go verse by verse through that. But look at chapter 3. Pick it up with me at verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. That's that unruliness. Same word. And not in accord with the tradition you receive from us. The tradition would be the sound doctrine, the teaching that they were to follow. Verse 7, you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle. Same word, we were not unruly when we were with you. Verse 8, we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have the right, but to give you an example to imitate. Verse 10, but even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work let him not eat. For we hear, so verse 11, something came to the ears of Paul and his companions. We hear that some among you walk in idleness. Same word. You're unru they're unruly. Some among you in the church, they're unruly. They're idle. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. See, unruliness in your heart and life leads to idleness, and then you're just going to go around kind of telling other, everyone else what to do. In verse 12, it says, Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus. Direct command to them. Do their work quietly, earn their own living. Verse 13, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. So you're going to be doing good to them as you follow this imperative to admonish them. And it's not like, oh, someone else will get to it. If you see it and you know about it, you're to humbly and gently and firmly go to them and and bring it up. Unruly behavior causes mayhem. It's an outflow of deeper heart issues that are going on. It's an indicator of other issues. Unruliness leads to idleness. That's why Colossians 1.28 says, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Everyone in the body is to be loved, to be respected, but also, when necessary, to be warned. Galatians 6, 2, and 1 and 2 says, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, not that you go around going, oh, I'm spiritual, but that you are mature in your faith, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. The picture is the idle one, the unruly one, is out of step with what God says in the word, just like soldiers who don't keep rank. Spurgeon said, idle people tempt the devil to tempt them. 
He says, if I throw myself down in idleness like an old piece of iron, I must not wonder that I grow rusty with sin. And you'll notice everyone but the unruly has responsibility to correct. Where you need to sound the alarm. You need to give a wake-up call. That's the first imperative. Second imperative, encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage is the imperative. The faint-hearted, those who are fearing, those who are doubting, those who need encouragement, they need bold encouragement. They're timid. In in that day, in Thessalonica, the the problem among some Christians was this. They were worried about their dead relatives that had died before Christ returns. They're wondering. They're worried about their salvation. And he's saying, don't despise them. Like Isaiah 35, strengthen the weak hands and the feeble knees. Say to those with anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Your God will save you. Hebrews 12, 12, lift the drooping hands, strengthen the weak knees. The picture I get is of, of comforting a, a scared child. Where you're merciful. Maybe they're downcast or they're worried or they're afraid or they're, they're anxious. They, they need encouragement. You, you need to be sensitive to their situation. You need to comfort the confused. Just like, just like we saw in chapter 4 and, and into chapter 5. Encourage one another with these words about the imminent return of Christ as you live now. And as you love now. So admonish, encourage the different people in different situations in the church. The third imperative is help. Help the weak. Now this is not the person who's like weak because they don't have many muscles or something. This is moral and spiritual weakness. Maybe they were shrinking from persecution. Maybe they were caving into temptation. Maybe they were struggling with the liberty they have in Christ versus legalism. And what the, the, the command here is, is you hold them up. Hold them up. Brace them. The spiritually immature who are tempted to fall, don't abandon them. Don't run from them. Support them. In Ezekiel 34, God himself says this, I will seek for the lost. I will bring back the scattered. I will bind up the broken. I will strengthen the weak. In Matthew 12, quoting the Old Testament, there's a bruised reed he will not break compassion, help. Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, I I showed you this by working hard. We must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, it is is more blessed to give than to receive. Romans 14.1 says, Now, regarding the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Come on in. I'm going to tell you how wrong you are. The picture I get is of a load-bearing beam. You need to be like a load-bearing beam. You need to provide the strength that they don't presently have. Kindness and loving mercy and tender-heartedness towards them. Bearing one another's burdens, as Galatians 6 tells us, and thus fulfilling the law of Christ. If they're weak, it's not the time for you to make them feel worse or Cause them to feel like they've blown it. Just hold them up. Help them. Don't hinder them. That's the third imperative. And there's a fourth in this verse. And it's an, it's an overarching one that has to get applied to every person in the church. 
Be patient with them all. The imperative is be patient. Patience is holding out for a long time before you say a word or take action. Forbearing, long-suffering to everyone, even those who mistreat you. That you don't reject anyone in the church. The command here is forbear. The idea is a long fuse. You're not easily riled. You're not easily angered. You're, you're considerate. You're, you care for people. You got a long fuse. You're patient. First Corinthians 13 says love is patient and kind. Ephesians 4 says with all humility, with patience, Bear with one another in love. Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving as God in Christ forgave you. Forgives you freely, solely by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. Colossians 3 says this, and, it, and the picture is the Christian putting on the new clothes that God has provided. And it says, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, Humility, patience, bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. These are the kind of imperatives that we, in our pride, buck up against when we say someone else will deal with this. We live in tumultuous, impatient times. There's joy and there's pain. Our theological compass must be unbending, but our love for others needs to be like the biggest umbrella you can think of, like that big tent we had on the grass, on the grass field for a year, like a huge tent where you refuse to become angry or nurse anger towards people, where you refuse to take sides where you refuse to break fellowship over social and political issues, where you say, I am not going to get caught up in the riptide of unbiblical reasoning because the blood-bought union that I have in Christ with my brothers and sisters in my church is stronger than any human idea. We don't have to agree on everything, but we have to agree in Christ. You can't bind other people's consciences. You can't go up to someone and say, you have to do this because I told you that you have to do it. The Spirit of God binds our conscience with the Word of God. Our conscience is bound by the Word of God. But we ought to be governed by the Word of God. It drives our choices. It drives the wise decisions you make. And, and when you think about the church, here's how you have to think. Handle with care. Handle with care. Apply Patience to everyone. Everyone. Not just the people you, you think are deserving. We all, at, at one time or another, are thoughtless or even intentionally hurtful. Janie Cheney wrote an article that really struck me, and there was a sentence that she said, a sentence that she used. And, and Janie Cheney said this, the church is an ugly bride stumbling down the aisle to glorification. 
The church is an ugly bride, beautiful and being beautified by God in Christ, but stumbling down the aisle to glorification. God is going to glorify his bride. He's preparing his bride, but oftentimes we're stumbling. We're to be patient. Souls grow slow. Souls grow slow. We need to be patient. We need to, as Philippians 2, 4 says, look out not for our own interests, but for the interests of others. This is what love does. It, it does what, what, what God says. It admonishes. It encourages. It helps. It's patient. To, to the four descriptions of people, these four imperatives to help them. But it must be done with, with surgical precision and care. Like, like, a, like a surgeon with a scalpel. That's what love does. But we need to move on to verse 15 and see what love does not do. What love must never do. What we often do. And we must never do. Verse 15, the imperative is see to it. See to it. See. See to it that nothing like this happens. It's an imperative command. You're to look around and make sure that no one in the church, including you and others, repays anyone evil for evil. See to it. That's the imperative. See to it. You see to it that something doesn't happen. That no one repays anyone evil for evil. Retaliation is never justified. Ever for a Christian. So you're to see to it. Don't let it happen in your circle of friends. If someone does evil, and this is a fifth category now of person, an evildoer, even in the church, the laser focus is on this. No payback. No payback. Revenge is, is forbidden in Scripture. And, and someone might say, well, Exodus 21, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That was to restrain people from personal retaliation for social wrongs against the community. What the scribes did is they distorted it and twisted it to justify personal revenge, which the Scriptures never justify. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. He's saying, leave, leave justice in my hands. Leave justice in God's hands or God-ordained authorities. Leviticus 19, it says, You shall not take revenge or bear a grudge. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then the authoritative caveat, I am the Lord. Like God's saying, oh, you shall not do this. And I'm binding your conscience with this. Proverbs 17, if anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. Proverbs 20, 22 says, do not say I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord. He will deliver you. He's the judge. We all know that doing good to evildoers may lead to a change of heart. Proverbs 25, 21 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. Like, go beyond. Now, go beyond kill him with kindness. You can do kill him with kindness with a really bad attitude towards someone. I'm just going to kill him with kindness. 
because I don't like them. No, you need to go beyond kill them with kindness and lean into love and choose to sacrificially and sincerely love even the person who does evil. Romans 12, 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. 1 Peter 3, 9, Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Instead, bless. Bless to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. Our knee-jerk reaction is fight back, retaliate. 1 Peter 2, 19 says this. It's gracious. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God when you are mindful of God. We think, what would please God? What should I do? That you endure sorrows while suffering unjustly because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. It goes on to say that Jesus committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, when they were hurling insults at him, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. No retaliation, no payback. You know, you're watching a basketball game and someone uh, dishes out a, a nice elbow to the face and puts out a flagrant foul on someone, or maybe you're watching a football game and someone does the, the, the helmet targeting and what have you. The recipient always wants to jump up and go at them. Hold me back, hold me back, I'm going after them. And what do the teammates do? What do the good teammates do? Hold them back. You want to love this church? You want to love everyone in this church? You want to help? Hold people back from payback. Payback boomerangs on the perpetrators, by the way. Revenge is so foolish. It's like the man who had this new car, and he drives his brand new car over and over again into an old parked car. Police come, and they're like, what are you doing? He goes, I'm taking revenge on my old car for giving me so much trouble. Hannah Moore said it's cheaper to pardon than to resent. It saves you the expense of anger, the cost of hatred, and the waste of spirits. C.S. Lewis said everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. He says, here's what it means. Looking at the sin and seeing it in all of its horror and dirt and meanness and malice. And nevertheless being wholly reconciled to the one who has done it. I don't know who said this, but they said, when you bury the hatchet, don't bury it in your neighbor's back. Don't respond like the lady whose neighbors forgot to invite her to the neighborhood picnic, and they remembered the morning of, so they go to her house to invite her, and she snaps back, too late, I already prayed for rain. You have to hold yourself and others back from payback. That's what love does. Admonishes, encourages, helps, is patient. With four different descriptions of people that are in moments, maybe seasons, maybe it's become ingrained, but there's four imperatives to help them. This is how you bless the church. This is how you love your brothers and sisters. And what love never does is repay evil with evil. That's the fifth imperative. Let's get to the third, the third point here. One umbrella exhortation that love must always obey. It's an overarching imperative that every believer must always do. Last part of verse 15. 
So instead of payback, here's what it says. Always. Always means always. Always seek. That's the imperative, by the way. Seek. You're going to put out all your energy to figure this out. How can I do this? What can I do? I'm going to go do this. Always seek. There's the imperative to do good to one another and to everyone, even the evildoer. Where you, where you don't just avoid retaliation. You extinguish the resentment by a love that repays evil. You fill in the blank with me. With good. The acts of goodness must be willed. Even against your pride. Especially against your pride. That you do good on purpose to everyone. That you purpose that. That you plan it out. That should be the default heart motive of yours, that only pride refuses this imperative. John said, beloved, do not imitate evil, imitate good. Galatians 6.10 says, as we have opportunity, as we're living, let us do good to everyone, especially to those of the household of faith. Romans 15 says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. In Christ, he did not please himself. A lot of people have said this, but people will say, well, church would be easier if it weren't for the people. Usually we say it this way, though. Church would be easier if it weren't for those particular people or that particular person. But you know what happens. You find what you think is the perfect church, and you mess it up by showing up. You need to practice good Because you love Jesus, and you love your family in Christ, and you love all people, and you're deciding to do that. And guess what? Open season on doing good. Do whatever good you want to do. And you can apply this into your marriage, into your parenting, into being a child or, or, or someone who's living under their parents' roof still. Uh, apply it to your sibling relationships. Apply it to all your relationships where you say, I'm going to choose to bless. And perchance, if someone comes to you with something to talk with you about, and they're not coming, you know, guns blazing and fire in their eyes, they're coming calmly and lovingly, trust that they want your good. Godly correction and comfort and counsel is for our good. See, you need need to want to help Grace Church be a growing, healthy, fruit-bearing church. It's kind of like a garden. You need to plant three rows of squash. Squash gossip, squash criticism, squash unforgiveness. And you need to plant four rows of peas. Prayer and preaching and working with people and being patient. And then you need to plant five heads of lettuce. Let us be unselfish. Let us walk with wisdom. Let us love one another. Let us not grow weary in doing good. Let us obey God in all things. And you grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The local church must do these six imperatives. Admonish, encourage, help, be patient, no payback, and do good. How do you apply that? I want you to think in concentric circles. Like you throw a pebble in a pond and the ripples go out. And you think 
you and then those closest to you in your household and your friend group and your Bible class and your home group and so on. And those closest should deal with things they see and not ignore them. Because when they're ignored or allowed to fester, often the person's sin breaks out on others and infects others because it went unchecked. This is all of our job in the body of Christ. It's not just the elder's job. It's all of our job. This is to all of us. Ephesians 2.10 says that those who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone are God's workmanship. The Greek word is startling. It's poema. Literally, you're his poem. You're his beautiful creation in Christ. We're new creatures in Christ for good works that God prepared. He, he, He set them up ahead of time for us to do. So whatever good you do, it's, it's God-purposed. It's God-given, and, and he gives you the strength to do it. God at work in you to will and do his good pleasure. This is local church life. This should be the heartbeat of your life in Christ, local church life. It's illustrated. Uh, you know, we gave this membership commitment out in your handouts, and it's on our website. And I just want to encourage you, digest it. Read it. Aspire to it. Pray that you would do and that all of us would do what it says, that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and one another, that it would be the heart's desire of us as a church together. We're going to be praying for some new elders in a few moments and deacons in a few moments. One of our elders uh, died last year. He went home. To Jesus. We rejoice with him, but we still feel the pain. There was a moment, his name, Jeff Lordson, if you don't know him, but one of, here many, many years and served so faithfully. There was a moment where he, before he died, couldn't talk anymore. So he was just uh, texting with, with us. And we would go back and forth and just, that's all we could do. They wouldn't let us visit him. And, uh, we would be sending these texts to each other, and and one of his last texts to me, here's what he said. He said, thanks for your loving support. I appreciate it so much. The entire body has been great. And then he said this, and it actually shocked me. He said, this has given me a different view of real body life. Here's a guy who for many years was so willing to spend and be spent for the souls of others and help anyone. And I'm like, what? What? Wait a minute. Here's the epitome of real body life. And he's telling me that, that what he's going through and how people are, are loving him has given him a different view of real body life. And we can all learn and grow in this. I mean, I mean Jesus wants his church to deal appropriately with one another and and take care of issues as they arise because love obeys God. And obedience just leads to some beautiful outcomes. We have six imperatives to work with here. They're anchored in the authority of God over all of life. And what does it do? It leads us to praise the glories of God's grace in Christ as we behold the beauty of Christ in Scripture. When when you know God's love, you, you worship Him. It's like Amy Carmichael said, the love of God 
what it is none but his loved ones know. What love does, it admonishes, it it encourages, it helps, it's patient. But what it does not do is ever let evil be repaid with evil. And what we must always do, what love always does, is seek to do what is good to everyone. It sets our hearts on the sovereign God who speaks through his word and who convicts and who saves and who sanctifies as he wills. It, It drives us to acknowledge the lordship of Christ over all things, over us. And such that the the outflow of Christ's life and love in us leads us to to not go and blast anyone, but to go and bless everyone. The real church, the real church is is living right now on earth, anticipating the imminent return of Christ, and urgently loving everyone. That's that's an otherworldly love. As C.T. Studd put it, only one life. It'll soon be passed but only what's done for Christ will last. Let's do that. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your goodness to us, your mercies, your your kindness to us, your, your forbearance with us. I pray, Lord, that you would lead us all to set our hearts to worship you above all and to seek to, to serve you and, and bless others. All for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to move right into a commissioning of elders and deacons. And I want to invite our elders up uh, in a moment. I'll uh, get ready. I'll, I'm going to say a few things before we do that. I'll invite the elders up. We'll do, the el- we'll do an elder commissioning first, then we'll do the deacons after that. But let me say a few things first. Uh, this is an exciting day in the life of Grace Church. It, we've, we've done this lots of times. It's, it's always great to commission new leaders. And if you think about it, God transforms our lives by the gospel. And the word is at work in us, and, and we get to serve Jesus. There's nothing better than to serve the Lord. Every believer gets to do that. But today we have the privilege of praying for three new elders and four new deacons, and our leadership structure is based on the, the simple leadership structure in the New Testament, that of elders and deacons' roles. And one of the ways God bl- uh, blesses his church is uh, he gives people in his body uh, different callings and giftings to serve in various roles. And the roles are differentiated. If you look in your Bibles in 1 Timothy chapter 3, you'll notice that there's the elder role then followed up with the deacon role. And they're different, but there's some similarities. But the elders first in, in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, it says this, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, now last week we saw that the word for elder, presbyteros, the word for overseer, episkopos, and the word for pastor, shepherd, poimen, all refer to the same office in the church. We use the term elders. And it says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he will not fall into temptation and the disgrace and the snare of the devil. Elders are called to shepherd the flock of God, to give humble oversight of a local church, to faithfully teach the word, to consistently administer the ordinances, to lovingly practice church discipline, 
and to equip the saints for works of service. What elders are to do, and the three men that we are put, have been put forth and overwhelmingly affirmed by the congregation, their names were put forth before this season. Some of them several years ago, and we take the elder role very seriously. It's this, the elders oversee the life of the church, and so we take time to equip our elders and observe their life over a number of years, and all three of these men, we have done that with them. I, I have to say it because of this day and age in which we live, but the reason we have men only as elders is because that's the only biblically accurate model. It's what the Bible says. Last week we saw, we, in, the, in verses 12 and 13, we ask you to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now let's talk about deacons for a moment. The Greek word is diakonos. It means servant. It means someone who ministers. And the best way I can explain the role of a deacon is they're called to assist the elders in the care of God's church by serving, by meeting practical needs in the church. You can call them ministers of mercy and compassion, if you will. And they are referred to in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13. Look at that with me. Deacons likewise, likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and the households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Ministers of mercy and compassion. Deacons, there is a difference in qualifications. Uh, one, regarding able, uh, being able to teach, as the elders uh, list. But the role is different. Elders oversee the life of the church. Deacons assist the elders in the care of the flock. You might ask the question, why do we have men and women, deacons and deaconesses? Verse 11, and you'll notice, theologians have wrestled with this for years and years, but theologians have, 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 uh, are confident in this, and we are confident in this as biblical theologians. Uh, verse 11 applies to the wives of, of, el of deacons who serve along with them, because there's nothing about an elder, uh, elder's wives in their, uh, you know, the verses, uh, the qualifications for elder. That's either that, ver either that version or other godly women in the church. And either way, it's clear. It's, it's not clear to everyone, but it's clear that this is what is clear. The biblical model is men and women serving in this kind of role. And the path we've chosen is to have godly women. We, we're not saying you have to be the wife of a deacon. So just in case you wonder, overall, we are to honor such people who serve faithfully as elders and deacons. Hebrews 13 says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account and let them do this with joy and not with grief for this would be unprofitable for you. And so today, the privilege of praying for those called to these servant roles who serve the interests of Christ for the good of his church. And so we'll start with elders. Invite the elders up. All the elders come on up. Newly appointed elders, Tom Radmilovich, and George Miklia and Paul Phillips, uh, obviously joining the present elders.
I'm going to say something to Tom and George and Paul, and I'm going to say something to all of you and ask you to affirm. So Tom and George and Paul, do you commit yourselves to spend and be spent for this flock, loving the Lord Jesus above all and teaching and shepherding and caring for the people of Grace Orange as a humble and bold servant leader? And church, it's actually on this membership commitment, one of the last things. Will you joyfully submit yourselves to your elders who are called to keep watch over your souls, trusting that God has placed them in positions of leadership as humble, imperfect shepherds for your good? Yes, Yes, I know you do. I know you do. And Mark Holbrook, the current chair of our elders, will pray for these new elders now. My gracious Lord, we're grateful that we can come together today recognizing, Lord, that the Lord Jesus himself is the head of this church, that he is indeed the chief shepherd. We also humbly acknowledge before you today, Lord, that you have called out under shepherds. You've called out overseers. Lord, we pray that uh, you indeed would be, that your hand would be upon each one of our elders here today. And Lord, especially we want to Pray for and commission and commit, Lord, these three men, Tom and George and Paul, that they indeed would be men who eagerly serve, not, Lord, for the praise of men and not for the acknowledgement, not for some kind of office, Lord, but that they desire passionately and that they would desire passionately, Lord, to serve you and to serve the flock of God, to shepherd the flock of God in this place. Lord, we pray that uh, you would give them wisdom to give them strength, that you give them perseverance, that you would give them, Lord, a heart of the gospel of Christ mm-hmm. and a love for the flock of this place that they might be willing, Lord, to, to give their very lives for the sheep of this, of this congregation. And, Lord, we understand that uh, they will make many sacrifices in days and years to come to serve this flock, and we pray that you would uphold them and strengthen them and guard them even as they seek to guard this, this flock. And Lord, we also acknowledge before you that you have promised for those elders who serve well that you have a crown of glory laid up in heaven for them. Lord, that's, may that not be their sole motivation, but may that be in their minds, Lord, that you will one day hold them accountable and reward them for their faithful work. So, Lord, we commit them to you. We thank you for them. We pray your added blessing upon them as they shepherd the flock of God in Grace Church, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, now we're all going to stay up here, and we're going to have quite a number of people up here, but we're going to stay up here. We'll back up a little bit and invite the deacons and deaconesses up, uh, both present and the new ones, uh, Kristen Radmilovich, Landon Martin, Philip Sanchez, and Steve Skelly, uh, joining their present deacons as well. And I'm going to say something to them and then also ask you to affirm something as well. So Kristen and Landon and Philip and Steve, do you commit to assist the elders in the care of God's church at Grace Orange and do everything you can to serve God's purposes and the people of Grace Church? And church, will you pray for them and assist them and come alongside them as they serve Jesus and this church? Okay, Alan Weisenberger, one of our elders, will pray for these new deacons now. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for raising up those within this body who are dedicated to serving you and your people. We pray now especially for Kristen and Landon and Philip and Steve as they serve, that you would watch over them and protect them from the spiritual forces that would seek to undermine their leadership. Continually draw them nearer to you so that it is your voice that they hear and recognize above all others. We ask that you would bless them abundantly and that they would faithfully use those blessings to be a blessing to others within this church and in the community and in the world at large. May their reputations among believers and unbelievers alike open doors for them to be powerful influencers to grow your kingdom. We know, Lord, that they will face challenges as they execute their office, and we pray that even in those times that they would experience the peace and know the joy that comes from watching you achieve through them that which they humbly acknowledge they are not capable of doing in their own strength and wisdom. Lord, help us individually and as a body to faithfully honor and respect them for their faithful service. And we'll give you all the glory and the honor for all that you do in them and through them as they serve. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. All right, now go get, get, go get to work. Yeah.